He knows that his life could be in danger just around the next corner. And in fact, if we pair this psalm with the next one, we see that very thing. David prays to be rescued from the deadly enemies who surround him on every side. So in Psalm 16, it it seems David is, the psalmist is preparing himself for what trials may come. He's meditating on the all-satisfying sufficiency of the Lord, and this in turn causes him to rejoice. This is what we, we see here in Psalm 16. Apprehending the complete sufficiency of Christ results in death defying rejoicing in Christ. If you're not able to rejoice in Christ in the midst of your certain circumstance, perhaps it means you're not experiencing Christ as all sufficient for you. You know what sufficiency refers to, kids? It, it just means being enough for you, having everything you need to be satisfied. If, however, you experience the Lord as everything you need, your heart and your soul will rejoice in the Lord in every circumstance, including that day when you stand toe-to-toe with death itself. We have a rejoicing faith because Christ is everything that we need. Let's consider how we see this in the Psalms. First, notice the the sufficiency of the Lord as opposed to other gods. Look at verses 1 through 4. The psalmist calls out to God for preservation. It is this God, Yahweh, to whom he is calling. It's this God to whom he is praying. It's this God in whom he takes refuge. He knows that the Lord alone is sufficient to preserve him. And the contrast he makes is between Yahweh as the one true God and other so-called gods worshipped by the nations. Verse 1 echoes the line we saw last week in Psalm 2, 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him, meaning the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of God who is King and Messiah. Already then, David is proclaiming his trust in the Lord and His Anointed One. He's not just looking at some generic God. He is looking to our God, Yahweh and his son, the Messiah. Verse 2 is interesting. It appears that the subject here is second-person feminine. So your version may say, I said to the Lord, but it reads, you said to the Lord. That makes us wonder, who in the world is he talking about? And like Calvin, I take it to be referring to the psalmist's soul. His soul is speaking here in a similar way to Psalm 42 and 43. Those psalms are probably familiar to you. There he says, he's speaking to his soul. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you so disturbed within me? Hope in God. He's he's telling his soul to hope in God. For I shall yet again praise him. And those verbs are in the feminine as well. He's encouraging his soul to trust in the Lord. So here, his soul is doing so. It says, you are my Lord. This is what his soul says. You are my Lord. I have no good besides you. Consider this. David's soul is completely satisfied in his master, in the Lord. His delight is in God and in God's people, the holy ones in the land, the noble ones. 
In other words, in those who are in covenant relationship with God, who have the promises of God, in contrast to these other people who worship these so-called false gods. Look at verse 4. There will be an abundance of sorrow for those who go after another god. Your version might say, those who run after another god. The term, here's another difficult one. There are difficult terms throughout this psalm, but you may have a note at the bottom of your page about it. It means perhaps to pay for or to acquire. And it's used also in Exodus 22.16 to refer to the, the price a man would pay to a woman's parents for, her, for him to marry her. So a bride price. So one interpreter says, the image is of eager bridegrooms paying the price to acquire the object of their desires. They're eager to pay whatever it takes to acquire what they need, what they want. The psalmist vows, he will never pour out blood offerings to their gods. He will never lift up their names to his lips. He will not go after other gods. Never will not worship another nor practice what the godless practice. You know that idolatry was a perennial temptation for God's people throughout their history. And in many parts of this this world, this kind of blatant idol worship is still a temptation. I remember a story about some men who made professions of faith in Jesus after hearing the gospel story. But when the missionaries arrived back to the village to distribute Bibles to these men, they found them in the the very act of sacrificing to their previous gods. And although we wouldn't have that same temptation, we certainly do have the temptation to run after other gods rather than the one true God. Satan may have changed his tactics to make them more palatable to our modern taste, but the temptation to idolatry is still there. You face it every day, whether you realize it or not. You could consider the idols you worship before you became a Christian. And how even after uh, being converted to Christ, being changed, trusting in Christ, you may be sacrificed to those very same idols. What sorts of things were you chasing after? What sorts of things did you idolize? And could it be that some of these same idols tempt you now? We could ask by using the same terminology in the text. What objects are you eager to pay the bride price for so that your own desires can be met? For what or for whom are you willing to, quote, pay the price to get it? We could consider the idols of our own culture and how we might be tempted to join in with the culture around us in worshiping something other than God. So we swim in the waters of the idol of affluence. We don't even know sometimes we're bowing before its altar. Our culture worships the idol of self. Are we not tempted with that in our relationships, in our desires? This is the temptation of every person. Kids, consider, have you thought about the fact that fighting with your brother or sister or being unwilling to share with that friend may be a form of worshiping yourself rather than God? Having an idol of yourself? So the Lord's sufficiency as the one true God has to do with our worship. And we shouldn't just ask, what are we worshiping? 
We should also ask how we are worshiping. You know that the struggles that God's people had, they weren't simply stopping, stopping worshiping Yahweh in order to worship other gods. Rather, what did they do? They blended them together. They blended the worship of Yahweh with the worship of other gods. They would worship Him alongside of some other god. And so we might consider, how are we, how are we putting God into the mix of the worship of our gods? So, brothers and sisters, we should be careful as individuals and as a church that we are not led astray into any sort of syncretism in belief or practice. God has revealed that we are to worship Him alone and how we are to worship Him. So we must remain distinctly Christian in our worship. Distinctly Christian and biblical in our worship. David identifies God's people as His holy ones in the land. They were called out separated and we are to be separated as well it's interesting the psalmist speaks of the land in verse 3 because we see in the next few verses that he builds on this imagery to make another point about god's sufficiency the lord's sufficiency is contrasted with that other of other gods but secondly it's contrasted with earthly possessions Look at the terms David uses in verses 5 and 6. The Lord is the portion of my share. You hold my lot. The lines, the boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. These terms reinforce the imagery of the land that has already been mentioned in verse 3. If you turned back, and looked at this later in Joshua 18 to 20, we see the land of promise being divided up by lot. They speak of measuring out the boundaries, getting an inheritance of land. Each tribe receives a portion of the land, except for the uh, the tribe of Levi, the priests which came from Aaron. And listen to the words that are used in Numbers 18, 20, when the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in the land. Neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. So we see David wasn't coming up with this imagery on his own. He had perhaps seen it already. He was borrowing the imagery from the Lord himself that the Lord had given for the priests of Israel. And in this way, the psalmist is showing that he understood the promises of God weren't ultimately simply about possessing a land of abundance and prosperity and security, David here pictures the Lord himself as the land, as that which he will be satisfied in. The Lord is his inheritance. Even if he had no land, no prosperity, no inheritance, the Lord himself would be everything that he needed. You could imagine, for me, it would be sitting on a beach property, Beachfront property, maybe on the deck or out in the sand, and just being able to breathe in deep and saying, my inheritance is beautiful. What sorts of things do we take satisfaction in? Well, here David pictures Yahweh as his delightful inheritance, his satisfaction. Nothing in this world. And yet, as I speak, there's a raging conflict over the very land of which the Bible speaks. Maybe you've heard about it in the last few weeks, months, years, right? 
I have to admit, I don't know a whole lot about the details of the conflict. But I do know there's this constant battle over the land. To whom does it belong? The Jewish people would say it belongs to them. And they point to perhaps Joshua 18 to 20. Others say it belongs to them because of their own ancient history in the land. But here's what they're missing. It's not about the land. The land wasn't the ultimate goal. The land wasn't the ultimate possession or portion or share or inheritance. It's about the Lord Himself. He is the ultimate goal. His presence is the ultimate inheritance we are looking for. And this is what David himself is pointing to in this psalm. The Lord is my inheritance. And this applies no less to your own possessions and lands and inheritance. Maybe you're prizing other things in this life, things that would make you want to fight someone if they took it away from you. In keeping with these verses, verses 5 through 8, you could think about your own possessions, your own prosperity, your own security in this life. In what is your delight? In what or in whom are you satisfied? Consider how we need to keep this at the forefront of our minds as a church. What is it that is central to our life and our joy and unity as a church? What are our hopes and dreams as a church? Especially as we think about the trials we've gone through in the last three to six years. As we think of ourselves as a young, small church. It might be our temptation for our end goal to become attaining a certain numerical size. It might be for our own goal to own a piece of property, our own church building. Will then, will we have arrived? But if that's the case, then we will have settled for something far more inferior, inferior than what is really our portion, our possession, our inheritance, our end goal. Christ is our portion. He is our inheritance. So let's ask ourselves this question. Is the Lord himself enough for us? What is our sufficiency? Can we say as a church with the psalmist, the Lord himself is our portion and our inheritance? In our singing, in our prayers, in our worship, in our preaching, in our hopes and dreams, let us know that Christ is enough for us. We don't need anything beyond him. Amen? Let's not settle for earthly measurements or hopes when we can put the focus exactly where it belongs, on the Lord Jesus Christ. The psalmist continues to contrast the sufficiency of the Lord with everything else in the world. We have seen how He's sufficient where the false gods are not. You've seen where He is enough, more than enough, where possessions are not. But now consider that the Lord Himself is sufficient even though life itself is not. Notice again what I think is a key verse in Psalm 16, verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. I say it's a key verse because the therefore points backward to the previous verses. The sufficiency of the Lord produces an indescribable joy in the heart of the one who takes refuge in Him indescribable because it seems like even the psalmist has difficulty giving expression to it. He says, my heart rejoices. 
But then he goes further than that. And the term there in the second phrase is difficult to translate. Some think he might be referring to his liver rejoicing. That might make sense. It's his, he already spoken of his kidneys instructing him in the night in verse 7. And then he speaks of his heart rejoicing. So maybe he's referring to his whole being, every part of my insides worship you, worships you. The ESV translates it, my whole being rejoices. But perhaps a better translation would be, my glory rejoices also. My glory rejoices. What does that mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. But I don't really know. <laughs> Maybe it's something like, even my, my glorying in you rejoices. Even my rejoicing rejoices. The, the best part of who I am that rejoices in you is rejoicing. All of who I am rejoices in you, Lord, because you are satisfyingly sufficient for me. Even his flesh, he says, my physical body dwells securely. In verses 10 and 11 provide a further explanation of why he rejoices and why his flesh dwells securely. So verse 9 not only points backwards to explain it, but also forward. Why does he rejoice? Why is his flesh dwelling securely? Because you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Sheol and the pit are two terms referring to the same thing, the the place you go when you die, the, the place of the grave. David's hope then is not necessarily that he wouldn't die and go to Sheol, the place of the dead, but that the Lord would not leave him there, that the Lord would not abandon his soul to Sheol. And I don't know how to make sense of that except to say that David already has a category in and of and belief in the resurrection from the dead. In other words, his hope was a hope that laid beyond the grave. He's looking beyond this present life, the possession of the land, his inheritance, his own life. He is looking beyond the grave in the hope of the resurrection. His hope was that he wouldn't be abandoned in death. Before we even make it to the next verse, this is instructive to us in this. It has been hardwired in us to want to live. Those who are dying in battle, those who are dying in struggling in hospitals, those at the edge of death often survive for a long time because there is this innate will to live within us. And yet David's hope isn't that he would merely continue to live physically. He's looking beyond it. In amazing, this amazing profession of faith, he looks beyond the grave to his own resurrection from the dead. But even this hope, notice, even this hope is grounded in something else, in another hope. We could see verse 10 as a parallel, two parallel lines speaking of the same person. However, I think we should take David at his word and apply the first line to him, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. And I want to take the second line as referring to some other person as he puts it in the third singular, your holy one, your godly one will not see the pit. In this way, the psalmist grounds his hope of resurrection in the resurrection of this godly man whom God will not let see corruption.
Well, notice in, verse, in, in chapter 15 of verse 1, I, th- I think 15, 16, and 17 in particular, maybe even 18, can be read in, in sync with one another. In Psalm, in Psalm 15, he says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell in your holy hill? And in the, the following Psalms, he's answering the question, Who can dwell in your holy hill? Who is this one who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart? And we go on to see that it's referring, I think, to this godly one. And then in Psalm 18, it's referring to the anointed one, a descendant from King David. Who is this godly man who will not see corruption? The godly man in whom King David himself is putting his trust. Turn in your Bibles and look in the book of Acts. And we'll look at two different sermons in Acts in which this psalm is quoted. Look first at Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 32. Acts 2, 22 to 32. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And and Peter goes on to say, it wasn't talking about David. David died and was buried. It's speaking of another, a descendant from the throne of David. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. And then also look at Acts 13, 35 to 40. This is Paul. Both of these men knew the scriptures and they knew that it pointed to Jesus Christ. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. David then is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ who was crucified for sinners and risen from the dead. The king above all kings. The, the true king over Israel. David's hope wasn't that he would be raised because of his own merit or righteousness. He knew he would die like everyone else in the world, but his hope was in his greater son, the Messiah Jesus Christ. He had hopeful expectation that those who look for refuge in him would experience a resurrection like his. So verse 11, You make known to me the path of life, And here, it is in the rest of verse 11. It's not, here it is, 
in the rest of verse 11. It's not about the land, about living forever in this earthly experience, this earthly existence. Here is the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So follow up that that idea about resurrection with understanding resurrection is not an end in itself. Resurrection is no good to us if it doesn't lead us into the presence of the Lord himself. He doesn't say, in resurrection there is fullness of joy, but in your presence there is fullness of joy. The image of the words in Hebrew is seeing the Lord face to face, before the face of Yahweh himself. That is what fullness of joy is. Being in the Lord's presence. But we also have to deal with Exodus 33 and recognize that uh, for a sinful human being to be in the unhindered presence of God face to face would be a deadly thing. And so when Moses asked God in Exodus 33 to see his glory, the Lord responded, no man can see his face and live. So how can we hope to stand before the face of the Lord and not die, but instead experience this death-defying joy? The answer comes again to this godly man. We need this godly man to earn the way for us. And we can see how Christ fulfills this, how Christ is that godly man of which David speaks. For when he was confronted with these very temptations to worship other gods, to worship Satan himself. He responded, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He passed that temptation. When he was tempted to turn to material things for his satisfaction by turning a stone into bread, he responded, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which comes from the mouth of God. And when he was tempted in the ultimate way to find satisfaction in the keeping of his own life, He prayed, Father, not my will, but yours be done. See, Jesus, much greater than David, found his satisfaction in nothing except the Lord. And that's why the scripture says of him, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christ lived the perfect satisfaction, lived with perfect satisfaction in God alone, but then received the punishment for we, us who did not have satisfaction in Him. God raised Him from the dead. His body did not see corruption. He was resurrected for our justification and He ascended into heaven and poured out His Spirit upon His people. And if you receive Him by faith, you too will rejoice with David in peace and in suffering, in prosperity or in poverty, in life or in death, the Lord is my all-satisfying sufficiency. All of us will go through trials, suffering, some more than others. All of us, however, will face the final enemy, which is death. We're confronted with it every day, and one day we will be confronted with its application to our own lives. And suffering and death are kind of like the smelling salts of life, right? 
They wake us up to the realities of those things which are most important to us. Well, let, let us allow Psalm 16 to be our wake-up call to finding complete satisfaction in Christ alone. Let go of your idols. Let go of your possessions. Let go of your very life and find it in Christ alone. Let's pray together.